by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. If you follow the U.S. life insurance industry, you've probably noticed there's been a lot of M&A activity in recent months. Every few weeks seems to bring a new deal announcement. But M&A is only part of the story. The bigger picture, according to Moody's analysts, is that the life insurance industry is undergoing a whole business model transformation. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, from New York, my co-host Sebastian Silva will talk to Bob Garofalo and Laura Bazer of the U.S. Life Insurance Team about what's driving all the M&A in the life insurance industry. Sebastian, welcome back. Thanks for joining Focus on Finance again. Of course, Danielle. Thank you for having me. Always happy to be here. What are we looking at today? Well, Bob and Laura have written the first two reports in what's going to be a series from the U.S. Life Team on the industry's business model transformation. So... What kind of a transformation are we talking about and what's driving it? In a nutshell, low interest rates. Low interest rates are the big driver. Rates have been low for so long, it's put a lot of pressure on a lot of insurance company businesses, especially anything with any kind of guaranteed returns. So like annuities? Yes, totally, definitely. Certain types of annuities, for sure. And beyond getting out of these capital-intensive businesses, Insurance companies are also looking to move themselves into the 21st century, if you will, via digital transformation. So some of the M&A is around that as well. Looking forward to hearing your interview with Bob and Laura a little later on. But first, we have Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts give us their very short takes on recent financial news topics. Joining me now is Donald Robertson of the banking team in New York. Donald, welcome. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks, Danielle. Good to be here. So, Donald, a few weeks ago, a hedge fund-like entity called Archegos defaulted, causing a few different banks to announce likely losses, some of those quite substantial in the billions of dollars. Archegos was a prime brokerage client at several different banks, and prime brokerage businesses, of course, are businesses where banks provide financing and related services to hedge funds and similar clients that enable those clients to take long and short positions in securities. So, Donald, you wrote a piece that talked about how prime brokerage fit into the Archegos event. Is this type of business typically risky? Um, it, it is typically a risky business, although uh, it is normally quite well controlled by the big banks, even though the actual risk management and the nature of the counterparty exposures may be opaque uh, to outsiders. But, but generally, the prime brokers themselves have, have a good understanding of their counterparties' activities and their overall creditworthiness, which allows them to maintain appropriate margins, which uh, which they can use to basically uh, seize and sell that collateral and avoid a significant loss uh, should problems occur. But things don't always work out as planned, right? Yeah, that's right. So as we know, financial markets can, can move very quickly uh, and can be volatile. And, and there's a particular risk of insufficient margin when prime brokers don't have uh, sufficient knowledge of the size and nature of concentrations in their clients' positions, especially when these are held across a number of, of, of different prime brokers. 
and this appears to have been a key issue that led to Archegos' default. It seems that Archegos had quite an unusual concentration in a relatively small number of securities, and, and when the prices of these securities moved the wrong way, uh, some of its prime brokers were caught off, off guard by that and, and didn't have sufficient margin on hand uh, to avoid incurring a uh, sizable loss when, when, when their clients' positions had to be liquidated. I see. that That's interesting. So some of Archegos' prime brokers incurred substantial losses, is what you're saying, when it defaulted, but others were able to exit their positions at little or no loss? Yeah, that's right. So some were able to unwind their, their Archegos-related exposures into the market without incurring a loss uh, when taking into account the margin levels they'd previously obtained, uh, but, but others weren't able to do that, uh, most likely because either they, they held insufficient collateral to begin with, and or they waited longer than others uh, to liquidate their clients' positions. Thanks, Donald. Turning now to another kind of risk, cyber risk. We have Jasper Cooper joining us from the insurance team. Welcome, Jasper. Thanks for having me. So, Jasper, a couple of weeks ago on an episode of this podcast, we talked about cyber risk and how banks, asset managers, and insurance companies are addressing that risk based on responses to a pretty large survey Moody sent out. And one of the points that came up in that survey is that or in that episode, rather, is that insurance companies in particular are in a pretty unique position regarding cyber risk. Yeah, that's right. It's because insurance companies provide cyber coverage to other, uh, to other companies, to other industries. So they're exposed in that way. And then on top of that, they also have their own operational exposure to cyber attacks, which includes private policyholder data that they need to protect. And I think one of the points in the episode also was that if an insurance company that itself sells cyber insurance gets hacked, there's additional reputational risk potentially. And in late March, lo and behold, a PNC insurance company, CNA, did disclose that it had been hacked. So what does that mean in terms of potential reputational damage, would you say? That's a good question. Um, cyber insurance overall, it's, it's a small line of business, but it's fast growing for PNC insurers. Uh, for CNA, cyber business accounts for less than 1% of their premiums. Um, we think the attack could impact that line of business, the company's reputational risk uh, for that line of business in particular. Uh, that said, uh, the company maintains a strong capital position and strong profitability and good good relationships with its agents and brokers. So uh, bottom line, it's it's case by case. Jasper and Donald. Thank you so much for your insights and thanks for joining us. Next up, my co-host Sebastian Silva will talk to Bob Garofalo and Laura Baser of the U.S. Life Insurance team about how the U.S. life insurance industry is transforming itself via M&A. Sebastian, over to you. Thanks, Danielle. Bob, Laura, welcome to Focus on Finance. Sebastian, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Pleasure to be here, Sebastian. It's my pleasure. Bob, let's start with you. The operating environment is difficult for all businesses, most businesses. Uh, the life insurance industry is no exception. So it's transforming. What does this transformation look like? What's driving it? Th thanks, Sebastian. You know, the main driver of this transformation is, is low interest rates, and it's really hindering growth in the life insurance sector. You see management teams reconsidering long-term strategies, and as, as they do that, they're they're thinking about mergers and acquisition and divestitures of non-core businesses. And, and they are also getting increased pressure from stakeholders to seek out growth, to offset falling net investment income, and to increase returns to improve stock valuations. And in response to this difficult operating environment, you know, the industry is transitioning to higher growth and capital-like businesses that require greater scale. And you also see companies 
shedding intersensitive or capital-intensive blocks, as we like to call them in, in the life insurance team, such as fixed or payout annuities and what companies acknowledge is likely to be a prolonged period of low interest rates, even despite the recent rise that we've seen uh, this year. So pausing there for a second, you say this dichotomy, if you will, between capital light and capital intensive businesses. What is a capital light business and what's a capital intensive business? Sebastian, glad to bring that up. Capital light businesses are businesses with less risk, lower capital requirements, but require a higher level of critical mass to obtain a same or similar level of return. And then conversely, businesses that require large amounts of capital to support the risk in the blocks are capital intensive businesses. Private capital is also playing a key role in the industry transition as it seeks to manage a greater share of insurance assets, often through M&A and other partnership or investments. I'm going to stop there and Laura is going to talk a little bit more about that in her discussion with you in just a little bit. Uh, and I think lastly, a looming accounting change will also crystallize losses in a low interest rate environment, will also likely drive additional M&A activity. So when you say a looming accounting change, could you give a specific example of a deal that shows a change like that in its business model? I, I can, Sebastian. You know, one good example is uh, Allstate recently announced uh, agreements to sell its life and annuity business in two separate transactions, one with the Blackstone Group and one with Wilton Ree, in total for about $3 billion. Allstate had, had been previously discussing its intention to pursue strategic actions on the blocks, uh, recently in Q2 of 19, highlighting the blocks drag on ROE and its initiatives to reduce exposure and, and improve returns. And so what you see in this deal is, uh, with notably with Blackstone, is that if they didn't do this deal, they estimated that uh, the negative impact on book value would be just over $3 billion from this accounting change. Uh, and this accounting change is going to be effective in 2023 for the, for the life insurance industry. And, and that's called LDTI, or, or in the life insurance team, what we like to call target improvements to the accounting for long-duration contracts. I see. And so your, your take here on the M&A, specifically with an accounting trigger or change, uh, is just part of the story, right? There's also a digital transformation in the industry. Uh, what? How does that fit in to some of the deal activity that we're seeing? No, that that's right, Sebastian. Glad you you observed that. You know, another driver of of M and A is companies needing to overhaul their digital capabilities, a trend that's really been accelerated during the pandemic. And to deliver value in this market, you see life insurers rationalizing products, making uh, cost uh, cost efficiencies. Uh, making investments in digital capabilities to improve the distribution of their products and services, really from end to end, in order to streamline their distribution channels. You see the expanded and accelerated role of technology throughout the buying, underwriting, service process. So that's what I meant by end to end. And and, and this is really meant to enhance uh, the company's digital capability. And we expect this uh, desire to improved capabilities will offer insurers the opportunities really to accelerate their digital presence through acquisitions or inorganic growth uh, uh, going forward. Thanks, Bob. Laura, turning to you now, let's get back to the M&A story. You looked 
specifically at one type of buyer that keeps coming up in these life insurance transactions, namely private equity firms. To me, it seems like generally these deals are positive for the seller, uh, but the transaction details matter. What do you think of these private equity or PE deals? Uh, you're right. It is a typically good for the seller, um, which gets rid of an underperforming business and can focus on you know core activities. But you're right. Again, it does really depend on how the deal is structured, the details. Um, is it structured as a true sale or is it a reinsurance transaction? And if it's reinsurance, does it include um, provisions that protect the seller from having the business potentially come back to it if the buyer encounters a stress situation, for example? Um, another thing that's important is what is sold. Is it a runoff block or is it an active business, ongoing business? And who is the PE buyer? Because there's plenty of counterparty and reputation risk, especially if the business is an ongoing one um, as opposed to a runoff block. If it's ongoing, um, are there uh, there are issues of credit sensitivity on the, on the part of uh, distributors and counterparties like banks and, and and so forth? I see. So looking at it from the insurance company point of view, whether it's that runoff block of an inactive business or an active business, uh, selling something that's underperforming tends to be positive. That seems pretty clear. What about for that ongoing insurance subsidiary that is acquired by a PE firm? To me, it's a little more nuanced there because we have to consider the strength or the weakness of that buyer. Is, is that right? Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you're a policyholder, a PE buyer is typically credit negative for you because PE firms tend to have a greater risk appetite than the firm you started with. Um, and this is in terms of things like asset risk and reserves and capital, which tend to be lower with a PE firm. So unless the PE buyer has a stronger credit profile than the former owner, and we have had cases of that, for example, KKR buying Global Atlantic, um, then policyholders will be worse off in a stress situation. I see. Uh, we're running low on time, though, so I think I should just turn it back to Danielle at this point. Thanks, Sebastian. Just one last question for Laura. Do regulators have a role to play here in determining the credit effects of private equity ownership of insurance businesses? Yes, absolutely, Danielle. Um, state insurance commissioners have to review and approve all um, quote-unquote change of control uh, transactions. Uh, and that includes reviewing the experience and creditworthiness of the buyers themselves as part of that. Um, in a nutshell, they have to make sure that the transaction won't harm policyholders or the insurance buying public. Right. Got it. Thank you, Laura and Bob, Sebastian, Donald and Jasper. Thank you all so very much for your insights. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to read any of the reports mentioned in this podcast, you can find those by clicking on the link for this episode at about.moody's.io forward slash podcasts. And please tune in again in two weeks on Wednesday, May 5th for the next episode of Focus on Finance. <laughs>